Pastor Mike Favares with Focal Point Ministries. I trust that the following recorded sermon will be a benefit and a challenge to your Christian walk. For more information about Focal Point Ministries, log on to our website at focalpointministries.org, focalpointministries.org, or call us toll-free at 888-320-5885. It's great to be preaching God's Word this morning. And without getting all sappy on you, I just want to tell you how joyful and, and grateful I am to be preaching God's Word in this church. You guys are, and here's the reason, because you guys are so receptive, by and large, to the, to the truth of God's Word, the straightforward preaching of God's Word. And that is a, it's a profound encouragement to me for the past 13 years preaching here at Compass. It doesn't get better than that than to, to, to wrestle with the word and then to bring that word to you on the weekends and in other settings in our church. And I know sometimes it's not easy because the sermons are, as I'm sure some of your friends who wonder why you go to this church are <laughs> saying, you know, they, they kind of hurt. Some of them, they're hard. And, and I, I understand that. Like last week, I, I had to slide into the sandals of the Sanhedrin and say, hey, let's see the Sanhedrin in yourself. You know, I look at, look at the response to Christ and, and that's hard. And, and this week, it's not a lot better in that I, I want you to consider for just a moment, honestly, about now that Jesus goes before Herod, do we see any of that that Herod in, in us? And, and I think that's helpful. It's a safeguard, but it just takes that honest connection between you and me in this time to be able to say, let's just see what the word says. Let's see what the problems are. Let's see to what extent it applies to us and how we can rightly respond to that. So before I ever get to Luke 23, as we finally reach verse 6 of Luke 23, I want to take you to Mark chapter 6 to give you a sense of who this Herod is. Now here's the problem with the word Herod. Herod represents by title at least three people in the Bible, the New Testament. And by that I mean you will find in the text, you'll be reading along, you see the word Herod, that's one guy, and then you'll be reading along in another passage, you'll see the word Herod, that means another guy, and you'll be reading along in the Bible, and you read Herod, and that means another guy. Now there are at least six Herods that could be called Herod in the Bible, that we see them there outside of the Bible. In other words, three of them are called Herod outside of the Bible, which would include Archelaus, one of the sons of Herod the Great. Aristobulus is not in the scripture, but uh, Philip, certainly in the scripture. And then the third one is the end of the book of Acts. He's called King Agrippa, who is technically known as King Herod Agrippa II. But the three that are called Herod, we've got to keep clear in our minds. And it is clear for someone in the first century because they know the time frame. Herod the Great, I've already tried to distinguish him, is one of the Herods in the Bible in in Matthew 2. He's the one that kills all the babies in Bethlehem. Smile at me if you remember that. You shouldn't smile. Frown at me if you remember that. That was a bad scene. And Herod was so jealous when the Magi came from from Persia and said, there's a king of the Jews born here. They learned that from Daniel and his prophecies. And he got torqued because he was called the king of the Jews. And so... He had the babies in Bethlehem killed because he couldn't identify exactly who they were because the Magi split on him. So that's Herod the Great. He has sons, and they take various positions in the kingdom Archelaus that we do run into in Philip. But the one that becomes a key player in the Gospels, which they would distinguish, even though in the Bible he just appears as Herod, is the Herod we're dealing with in Mark 6, the Herod we're dealing with in Luke 23. And he's known outside of the Bible as Herod Antipas, Antipas. And Herod Antipas, as your study Bible should say in the margin there, is the son of Herod the Great. Well, one of the, the nephews of 
Herod Antipas is another Herod that's called Herod in the first part of the book of Acts who causes a lot of trouble for the early church. And he's just presented to us as Herod who dies on, on the throne there because of his great arrogance, which Josephus, outside of the Bible, gives the same basic factual details about his death and how he died. So the three Herods in the Bible, distinguish them, are Herod the Great at the birth scene of Christ, bad guy, Herod Antipas that we're dealing with today, and Jesus goes to trial before him, and then Herod in the book of Acts, first half of the book of Acts, where we see him being a persecutor of the church. He ends up dying there in the book of Acts. Second half of Acts, there's another Herod. That's Herod Agrippa's son, who's not called Herod in our Bible. To distinguish that in that short literary work, we have Herod, Herod, period, who is Herod Agrippa and the first, and then Herod, King Herod, he's called Agrippa the second, King Agrippa. And Paul stands before him, as you remember, with Festus and Felix, and he he appeals to Caesar, and he goes off to Rome in what we've called in our New Testament survey, the fourth missionary journey of Paul, journey to Rome. All that to say what? All that to say that you need to keep the Herods distinct because they all have different roles in, in the scripture and respond differently. Herod Antipas is the one that, well, let's read about him here. He hears about Christ. Look at verse 14, Mark six fourteen, and he hears about the things that are happening. It, if you glance back up, Jesus is doing these healings, and that's going to certainly be splashed in the headlines. And so everyone knows about Jesus at this point. His name is getting out. As it says in the middle of verse 14, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, which has messianic overtones, the forerunner to the Christ, which of course he was the Christ, not the Elijah who was to come. And others said, no, he's a prophet like one of the prophets of old, even like Elisha was doing miracles. Miracles may be rare in the Bible in terms of these miraculous signs that break natural law, but there were other guys that did them, so maybe he's just one of those prophets like Elisha. When Herod heard of it, Herod Antipas, that is, Antipas, he said, John, whom I've beheaded, has been raised. Now, that was one of the things they thought he was. He's John the Baptist. Well, John the Baptist, Herod knew very well, is no longer alive, but maybe if he's doing miraculous signs now, which we have no indicators in the historical record that John the Baptist did any miracles, but nevertheless, he's thinking, well, maybe he's risen from the dead and now he's doing miracles. Well, how did that all come to be? Well, flashback verse 17. Now we have the story as we look back in time, chronologically, the historical flashback in verse 17. So let's read that, get a sense for who Herod is. It was Herod who had sent him and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias. Who's Herodias? I mean, they're not, they're not buying those baby naming books and kind of getting a variety of names here. Philip, Herod the Great has two sons named Philip by two different wives. I guess the wives were deciding on, anyway, Herodias, right? So we're back to Herod again, which is quite confusing. Nevertheless, speaking of Philip, that was Philip's wife. And if you read a little bit of the history behind all this, Herod Antipas had done a lot to steal Philip's wife, who was also his niece. It was just all messed up. But anyway, he marries her. And Herodias, why would you be mad about that? Well, here's why, verse 18, because John, John the Baptist, had been saying to Herod, Herod Antipas, saying, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. I mean, you divorced your wife and married another gal. That's bad enough, but you stole this other wife from your brother. And not only that, she's a close relative of yours. I mean, this is a bad scene. So th this isn't a very pleasant evangelistic encounter. Verse 19, and Herodias had a grudge against him, as I think a lot of people would. You're bashing my moral choices in marriage here. And she wanted to put him to death because she's the kind of gal, comes from the kind of family. You don't like someone, you can kill your opponents. And that's what she wanted. But, middle of verse 19, she could not. Why? Because she's got her husband here, and her husband wasn't going to sign off on it. Her husband feared John. 
had a great respect for John, was afraid of what John might do or what the crowd might do if, if he was killed at his authority, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and he kept him safe, kept him safe in this case from my wife who wants to kill him. And when he heard him, he heard John, he was greatly perplexed yet he heard him gladly. And that is an interesting, I mean, that's a whole other sermon. But what an interesting thing we see when the powerful, forthright preachers are perplexed by these guys that are getting a hearing. They're not preaching the tune that they so often are used to. People love the preacher, preach the soft words, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Well, you got a guy that's railing on the sin, on the people, and yet people are coming and flocking because it's a work of God. And just like we saw even when, when Paul is in prison in Caesarea before he goes off to Rome. I mean, these officials, someone wanted to see, I want to see this guy. Even in the end of the book of Acts, they want to see who this guy is because they're hearing stories about him. They're perplexed. They don't want to buy it necessarily like King Agrippa II, another Herod at the end of the book of Acts, but they're, they're perplexed and intrigued by it all. But an opportunity, big conjunction there. This is sad, right? Now I want to hear him. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and his military commanders and the leading men of Galilee, which, by the way, we're going to see in our passage today, that's where Herod led. Now, his dad, Herod the Great, led the whole of ancient Israel. But Herod Antipas got to rule this northern part. And we saw others that had various parts uh, that they ruled. But Herod had a firm grip of leadership as kind of a, a administrator for Rome. Rome's off this way for you. Rome off of this way, across the Mediterranean. And he was ruling in the northern part of Galilee. So he's got all his Galilean head honchos and all the brass of Galilee, and he's having this party. Verse 22, when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I'll give it to you. I often say this, you've got to be alcohol flowing at a party like this. I mean, that's a nutty thing to do. She just, it was a great dance and you're saying whatever you want. Now this is family, so you're not thinking this may be a safe request, but that's an ancient kind of way to say it. We saw it in the book of Daniel, up to half of the kingdom. We saw it all the way back in the book of Genesis. So that's kind of a way to say, I'll give you whatever you want as long as you're not going to take my job away. Well, and he vowed, verse 23, and he vowed. So here's a commitment, much like Darius with Daniel. He got himself into a promise, a covenant here, if you will. And and he, he bound himself to his word in front of everyone. Whatever you ask me, I will give it to you up to half of my kingdom. Verse 24, and she went out and said to her mother, what should I ask for? So Herodias now, who hates John the Baptist, has got dad on the hook in front of all these people. He's promised whatever my daughter wants, I'll give it to her, the daughter of Herodias. So she goes out with mommy and mom says, you know what I want? I want John the Baptist dead, the preacher that I hate. So immediately she came in and she, with haste, she ran into the king, tiptoeing in her dance shoes and said, hey, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And he kind of gets, as we see a lot of in the scripture, kind of feeling this pressure to keep his name and his reputation and all the rest. He kills John the Baptist and cuts his head off. Just a real shot in the arm for a party, I guess, to bring in the decapitated head of John the Baptist. So morbid and gross and terrible. That might explain, if in your Bibles you have in the margin, a passage from Luke chapter 13, verse 31, when Jesus is kind of wrapping up his Korean and Galilean ministry and he's moving down to Jerusalem, the Pharisees are trying to hustle him along. Get out, get out, get out. And they say, get out of here because Herod, Herod Antipas, wants to kill you. Now, that's what they're saying. We even learn elsewhere, as we're going to see today in Luke 23, that I'm not sure that he really didn't want to kill him. He certainly had killed John the Baptist, and Jesus knew that and grieved over that. But nevertheless, the Pharisees were going to use the fact that, hey, this might play in the ears of Jesus. We can get him out of here. Get out of here. Herod Antipas wants to kill you. And his response was, he says in verse 32 of Luke 13, go tell that fox, 
which is a descriptive word that wasn't used as it was used with you in the seventh grade. This was not a compliment in any way. Wavy locks of hair. What a fox. No, this is on several levels. It's an interesting statement of, of deprecation. He's, he's insulting him, a fox. Even in a lot of ancient literature, comparisons of a lion and the fox. You know, the lion conquers the fox, eats the fox, all the rest. Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah. I don't know if that's poetically on the surface of all this, but certainly a motif that we see. The fox is nothing compared to the lion. But the point is, the fox is cunning and deceptive and out to spoil, as it says in the Song of Solomon, the, the vineyards and all the rest. They're, they're pests. They're big, sneaky pests. And so that was the picture here. You're deceptive, cunning, deceitful, evasive kind of, of pain in the neck. But listen how he responds. Go tell that fox, look, I cast out demons and perform miracles today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I'm going to finish my course. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be the ransom for many people. Basically, go tell him to shut up, right? I'm not interested in what Herod says. So Jesus has this frustration with him, of course, because he killed, he decapitated at some stupid drunken party, John the Baptist, the greatest preacher that Jesus says the greatest prophet that's arisen. So that's Jesus's view of Herod Antipas. Now, Herod is in town because it, in Luke 23, as you turn there now, is the Passover. The Passover is one of the three feasts of Israel. They're all coming together. It's crowded. The hotels are all filled. Everyone is completely jammed into this city. And Herod, who always wants to ingratiate himself as he's leading over the Jews, they are leading over the Jews just like his dad did. They want to make sure that they're seen as observant Jews, even though they're not ethnically Jews. Matter of fact, Herod Antipas didn't have a single drop of Jewish blood in him. So, They're there. Pilate, as you saw last week, as I tried to uncomfortably put you in his sandals, I want you now to think about Herod, who he's trying evasively to say, because Herod's in town, maybe Herod can deal with this. Because he learns, if you look at our passage now, Luke 23, verse number 5, people were saying, after Pilate wouldn't give him the thumbs down to execute him, hey, he's stirring up people. He's a mess. Everyone's, he's a controversial figure. He's teaching throughout Judea, that's down south where Jerusalem is, Galilee, up north, and even to this place. Well, when he heard the word Galilee, he's going to go, oh, let's learn more about this Galilean connection. When Pilate, the Roman prefect, who's ruling here over Judea, for Rome, he's now kind of taken over Herod's jurisdiction in the south, Herod's, you know, Herod the Great's jurisdiction, because he's long since dead. He learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction. That's Herod's son, Herod Antipas, who's up north. Well, great. Let's go send him over to him. He sent him over to Herod Antipas, who himself was in Jerusalem at the time, which you would expect because it is the Passover. Now, when Herod Antipas saw Jesus, as he comes in, now we'll roll the tape forward. It's the morning. We've been through all that kangaroo court in the evening. And Annas, the high priest, uh, at least the kind of the respected high priest, Caiaphas, the reigning high priest. You had all the punching and the beating and had all the things going on. We had the Sanhedrin gathered together at that sunrise. And now we're going to take Pilate, have his, his little court, and now we're going to send him over to Herod. So Herod is now seeing Jesus. And it doesn't say he wants to kill him here. It says he's happy to see him. So I don't think the Pharisees were telling us the truth. The point is, he's like, ah, I finally want to see this guy. Why? Well, here's why. Four, here's the purpose clause. He had long desired to see him. I want to see him. Because he had heard about him and was hoping to see some sign done by him. Well, what had he heard about him? Well, he heard that he's doing miracles. We saw that over in Mark 6. We saw that throughout the book of Acts. He's familiar with Jesus and he knows he's a miracle worker. Jesus doesn't like him. Called him a name and said, you know, he's a cunning, conniving, deceptive, bad leader. But he wants to see him anyway. Well, I want to see this guy. I'd like to see a miracle done by him. And wouldn't you? I mean, if you're non, non-Christian, you're, well, I'd like to see this guy. This guy's raising the dead and healing crippled people and blind people. Let's see him. Bring him on. Let's, let's get that. I want to see a, a miracle in person. Verse 9, so he questioned him at some length. So I don't know how long this took, but at some length there, it wasn't just one question, one answer. 
But Jesus stood there silently. Even as Peter refers to, he was like a lamb led before the slaughter. Or even as Isaiah 53 had prophesied, he was going to sit there and not open his mouth. He's going to just go through this process. He knows he's here to be crucified and executed. He made no answer. Chief priests, the scribes stood by. They didn't like all this. They were the ones that wanted Pilate to give him a thumbs down. Now they wanted Herod to give him a thumbs down. And they vehemently accused him. Strong word only used twice in the New Testament. They are just intensely, mad, angrily accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him and arraying him in splendid clothing. Maybe you've seen the Renaissance pictures of him like in a purple robe. We don't know what color it was. Matter of fact, most historians think it was probably white. That was often what these officials wore. Nevertheless, a bright, splendid, that's what the Greek tells us, some kind of, something that a, that a carpenter's son would not be wearing, came out of the walk-in closet of Herod there in the palace. And, and they put this on him to mock him, obviously. You say you're some kind of king. I can't even get an answer out of you. I didn't get a miracle out of you. Well, send you back to Pilate then. Pilate can deal with you. Verse 12, and Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that day for before they had been at enmity with each other. Now, a few things here, as uncomfortable as it may be, I want to th- think through what's going on in verses 6 through 9 to start. Pilate sends him to Herod, and Herod wants to see him. And I just want to make that kind of weird connection to where we are as a people, and not just us, as a culture, and more than that, as an evangelical culture. There's a lot of people who are pitching a Christ that people want to see. And there's a lot of people that want Christ. They want to connect with Christ. They have an attraction to Christ. But notice the subtitle of the sermon this morning, Unmet Expectations. Clearly, the passage of anything else depicts for us people that are not happy with what they get when they get the real Christ standing before them. They're not happy. This is not what they wanted. In this case, be very specific. Herod wanted it. said, desired to see him because, verse 8, he had heard about him and was hoping to see some sign done by him. That's what I want. Do a sign for me. Well, people in the crowds had asked Jesus that before. Do another miracle. Do another sign. We want to see it. I brought my cousin. He's with me now. Tell do it. Do it again. And and Jesus never responded well to that. He's certainly not there to do some kind of magic trick for you, but it's not just that. Everything about this person was being rejected by the chief priests and the scribes and by the Sanhedrin and even by Pilate. No one is happy with Christ. And yet, in this text, we have someone, I'd like to see him. I want to see him. We live in a culture when a lot of people would like to have some kind of, at least, exploratory interest in Jesus Christ. And all I'm saying is the reason they have unmet expectations is that they want some kind of experience with Christ for all the wrong reasons. And so I would warn you, and I would warn myself, and I think we should warn our culture, especially our Christian culture. Number one, we should not seek Jesus for the wrong reasons. It won't end well. You won't get what you want out of it. So you better test your motives. Now, this gets a little complicated, but let's follow this a little bit. I can be a commentator on our culture for a while. We're living in a Christian culture that unfortunately has aided that problem of seeking Jesus for the wrong reasons. If you look at the Bible and you basically just boil it down, what is the issue here? Jesus came, as we've quoted a lot in this series, not to be served, at least not in his first coming, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So he's going to make a payment. As John the Baptist said, look, behold, there's a lamb of God. He's coming to take away the, what's the word? Sin of the world. Give his life as a ransom certainly implies that we got a problem that has enslaved us and we need to get out of that problem. We need freedom for that problem. We need some kind of payment to get out of the problem that we have. And the problem is S-I-N, it's sin. That's the problem. From the very beginning of the Bible, the first three chapters give us the picture of perfection and God making everything right and then sin. And from chapter three of Genesis on, sin, that's the problem, sin. We need to fix the problem and the problem can't be fixed by us. So we need God to intervene into space and time and fix the problem for us. That is the problem. 
from time to time I'll quote, or not quote in the sermons, I'm not big on quoting in sermons, but I will certainly reference on the back of the worksheet books by David Wells, the scholar that uh, done a lot of work out of uh, Gordon-Conwell. And in the one book I think I put on the back this week, Courage to be Protestant, he deals with something that is a theme in all of his books. But the problem of us not understanding the issues that are foundational to what we're doing as Christians in our evangelical society. In other words, we're supposed to be presenting the gospel. The gospel is good news. Good news from what? That I'm a sinner, deserve God's just punishment, but Christ is going to come and solve the problem. What's at the core of the problem? My sin, the sin problem. That's why it's no surprise that when John the Baptist, the greatest preacher, Jesus said, ever has a chance to deal with someone like Herod Antipas, he immediately goes to Herod Antipas and Herodias who's sitting next to him saying, you got a sin problem and he has no problem pointing it out. I mean, this is like shooting fish in a barrel. It's too easy. I know what your sin is. Everyone knows what your sin is. You need to identify your sin and and you need to repent of your sin. Paul did the same thing when he stood before his Roman officials. He had a great opportunity. He didn't go to banquets. He didn't take photo ops with the Roman officials. He sat there and said, you have a sin problem and it needs to be fixed. And he sat there and discoursed with these Roman leaders about self-control, about righteousness and the coming judgment. That doesn't win friends and and influence people. That's certainly not a Norman Vincent Peale approach to ministry. That's a problem. It's a problem because we know it will polarize people. It will rebuff them. So we need to understand that when it comes to Christianity, we're offering a solution to something that is not really the felt need of most people. David Wells, I mentioned him because in the book, he deals with the issue of sin, which I think is so insightful. And he quotes his research, and he's done a lot of it, about Americans today and their understanding of the basic problem that Jesus comes to solve. And of course, they'll identify it under the rubric or the title or the umbrella of sin. But when he explores with these people in his extensive research, what do you mean by that as they define it in all the different ways that they define it? He comes down to this stat. There are only 17% of the people 17% who see that the problem of sin is in some way related to God. Think about that. They don't don't see, right, that over 80%, that the problem relates somehow to God. Okay, is that a big deal? That's a huge deal. From the very beginning in the Bible, the Bible starts and presents to us a sin problem because someone is rebelling against the authority of God. It's not that they had a achy tummy. It wasn't that they had loneliness. It wasn't that they didn't have purpose. It wasn't that they didn't have a wonderful life. It's that they did something that was insubordinate to their creator. Only 17% of Americans see any connection with this thing that they know Christianity is supposed to solve, the sin problem. They don't see it as a transgression against the person. They don't see it as active opposition against their creator. They don't see it as a rejection of his truth or his authority. They don't see it as insubordination. They simply see it as, I got a problem, and Jesus is supposed to be the answer. And sociologists for the last 30 or so years have liked to, and I don't usually like to quote these labels because usually they're not all that useful, but I think it's telling to at least bring it up in this context that they've tried to understand that under a descriptive, sociologically, as to, in terms of what evangelicals are offering as something, at least two, two-thirds of their definition is this. They call it a, a therapeutic deism, okay? Now, the deists don't like that because there's theological overtones to what, you know, deism should mean. But nevertheless, it's something that's caught on. You read sociologists or even theologians or people that are, that are into looking at the problems of evangelical, you know, culture today. They'll say, this is certainly a problem. Deism. Deism what? This kind of distant, undefined, not sure I can define it, God, but he's a greater power and that power out there wants to help me. There's the therapeutic part. Fix my problems. Same reason you might say, here's a card. Go see my therapist. You got an issue. You got a problem. You're lonely. You're frustrated. You're, you're down. You're depressed. So, God, this God that we don't want to define too carefully, deistic, it wants to give you a, a, this therapy. Now, they'll attach that in front of that, a moralistic 
therapeutic deism, and I don't even think that's even all that hot anymore because I don't even want to deal with your morals. I just want to deal with this therapy of a God that will help my problem. So I think in that regard, therapeutic deism is helpful in, in thinking through the fact that people today will flock to churches all over Orange County, all over California, all over Western society, certainly in America, and saying, Christ might solve my problem. I'm interested to hear from Christ. And they have an expectation. Now, Herod might have just had some perverted interest in seeing a miracle, which I don't know is that all that perverted. We'd all like to see a miracle, but that was, I mean, that's all we learn about it here. But your friends and my friends might come to church with you to hear the Bible taught, to hear about this Jesus person, because they think it's going to solve my problem. And again, the church has been a party to the, to the deterioration of the real problem by holding out phrases that though they might have made sense back when they were created, they don't make sense anymore in the current context. For instance, Jesus loves you. Or let's add to that the phrase that became very popular in evangelism. Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. You can see where moralistic deism certainly will help understand why that can be defined today much differently than when your great-grandparents might have heard the fact that God, this God of the universe, loved you so much that while in your own sins, right, you were yet sinful, Romans 5, 8, he died, he sent his son to die for you. And he has a wonderful life for you. He will not punish you at the tribunal of the great white throne judgment and cast you into outer darkness where there's weeping, wailing, and ashes. That's a wonderful plan for your life. Someone might have understood it that way. I don't think that's how the average person understands that anymore. And the church is saying, hey, if you don't have purpose, I got, I got a Christ for you. He'll give you purpose. You don't have meaning? I got a Christ for you. He'll give you meaning. You're lonely. You don't have a family. Hey, Christ and his family will support that. You have a problem. You have an ache. You have a pain. Fix it. Here's my therapist's card. His name is Christ. And he will help you. That interest in Christianity today, and I hate to say it, but go look at websites of all the churches and see how many of them really are appealing to a kind of uh, this amorphous, cloudy definition of how Christ is somehow going to fix your problem. And they're bringing people in, and people are very interested to hear how Christ might make my life better. Now, will Christ make your life better? Well, sure, in many ways. Maybe not the ways you think. Will he give you purpose? Well, sure. It may not be the purpose you're thinking when you hear the word purpose. Will he give you, give you meaning? Well, of course. It may not be the meaning that you're thinking of. If you just out of the blue say that. Will he love you? Well, of course. But not with the love that you might be thinking and you imagine about a God that you don't really know who that God is and what love would be like. Will he give you a wonderful plan? Sure, if you want to define that biblically. But that's not how people think. When we say to them, like any commercial that they've been conditioned to think about in terms of this will be for you something helpful. So they pursue this Christ, but unfortunately they're pursuing Christ for a lot of the wrong reasons. You want to find some biblical examples of this study. We don't have time for this, but study on your own. John chapter 6, after Jesus in John 6 has the miracle of the of feeding the 5,000, the bread and the fish, which there was no little folder they came up with and who's going to pay for this. Everyone got it for free. Jesus leaves after that, and of course that attracts a crowd, and now they're going to tell their brother, their sister, their friends, everyone in the village to come check out this Jesus who's handing out free meals, and I'm sure the fish that Jesus makes on the spot are fantastic, and I'm sure the bread is perfect, and so everyone's going, this is awesome, this is great, and they seek Jesus, and they find him. And in John 6, Jesus responds to those guys, he says, you're not seeking me because of the signs. And I'm thinking, if you read that too quick, you think, well, yeah, they are, that's the whole point. Yeah, but signs have meaning. Signs have words. Signs have direction. Signs have arrows. You're not really seeking me for the sign and what the sign is pointing at. You're seeking me because you've misinterpreted the sign. 
You want the thing itself. The breaking of bread and feeding 5,000 people with a small sack lunch was for a purpose for you to see that Christ is the one who can quantitatively and qualitatively solve your problem. I came to give my life as a ransom for many. You are struggling. You're going to starve to death, spiritually speaking, without God, without his kingdom, without his presence, without his grace, without his goodness. You need me. You need to trust in me. I'm your only hope. And they just said, but you were giving out free meals, weren't you? He says, you're seeking me because you had your stomachs filled. You want something temporal. You want something to make you happy. You want something that's just going to satisfy you between now and, and the next day. And notice, interesting, the psychology, if you will, of that passage where they come back, start quoting scripture. Well, wait a minute. You're not going to give us a free lunch? What? No, wait, 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 wait. You're, hey, didn't Moses give free, free meals to people, that manna thing? Why don't we do that? Let's, I'm quoting Exodus now. Let's do that stuff. Won't you do that? He goes, no, no, listen. Moses didn't give manna, the kind of manna I'm talking about. Really, I'm talking about me. What you need is me. I am the bread of life. That's where that passage comes from, that statement from Christ in John 6. That kind of debate. And Jesus has to clarify with people that are coming to the right person. They're coming even based on the right signs, but they're not reading the sign and they're not seeing the problem and they're not coming to Christ to solve the real problem. That's people looking for a Christ for all the wrong reasons. Does Jesus love you? Yes. They have a good plan? Yes. But those things need to be properly defined, biblically speaking. Herod had a lot of things he wanted out of Christ, but as the subtitle of our message this morning says, he had a set of expectations and presumptions about Christ be sorely, they sorely missed the mark. He was disappointed. He got no answer out of Christ. So what's his response? Verse 11 is he's going to treat him with contempt and mock him. Intervene, verse 10, the chief priests and scribes are going to stand by and they're going to ramp up their angry shouting and, and vehement accusations of him. So everyone's now mad at Christ. Pilate doesn't get what he wants out of him. He kicks the can down the road to, to Herod's palace. The Sanhedrin doesn't like him. The chief priests don't like him. These are all people that understood that Jesus was some big deal. I and mean, the Pharisees of all people knew the Bible about the Messiah. He's claimed to be Messiah. They didn't like him, so they mocked him. They arrayed him in splendid clothing and Here Herod sends him back to Pilate. Their reaction to the real Christ was negative. Now here's the danger that I have. I can say to you, you and I should be concerned deeply about the state of current evangelical Christianity because they're holding out an image of a Christ, offering a solution to something that's not even the real problem. And they're doing it often with Bible verses, just like the people in John 6 could quote Bible verses, just like Satan can quote Bible verses in Luke chapter 4 in the midst of a temptation. But they're not getting the whole picture. And so Herod and Pilate and Caiaphas and and Annas and all the rest had an image of Christ and it was wrong. The real Christ stood before them and they got mad about the real Christ because there was a distance between the real Christ and their presumption about Christ. What they wanted out of Christ was not what Christ was there to offer, just like in John 6. So there was a conflict and the conflict was diagnosed by what? Their reaction. And what was their reaction? Vehement opposition. Vehement accusations. They were mocking and they were like, forget it then. Yeah, you're some kind of king. Put you in a robe. We'll send you off. You're no king. I cannot take your view of Christ and say, great, you come with me. Take everything you know about Christ, what you think you know about Christ. And we're going to go over an apartment over here in Elisa Viejo. And he's up on the second floor and come on in, sit down next to the coffee table on the couch. I'm going to go in the back bedroom. I got Christ back here. We're going to bring him out. And you can, your vision of Christ now can be corrected by the real Christ. Look into the brown eyes over the real Christ. And he will tell you exactly how far the distance is between your presumptions and your presuppositions and your ideas about him and what you think you can get out of him. Here's the real Jesus. And he's going to try and close that gap. And you can now test your views of Christ with the real Christ. I can't bring you to that apartment because he's gone. He's not here. He sent his spirit. We're not alone. I get all that, but he's not here for me to introduce you to the real Christ. All I can do 
is bring you to the Christ that has been revealed to us in Scripture, which is, we trust, and that's a whole other set of sermons, but that is the real Christ because he's accurately presented to us in the Scriptures. So the only thing I can say is I can't have you go look at the real Christ based on your theology about Christ or your presumptions about Christ and have you fix that. All I can do is have you look at the Scriptures, the whole of Scriptures, and say, here's how far off I was in my understanding about Christ. So number two, I put it this way. You want to diagnose how you're doing in that regard? I put it this way. You need to monitor your reactions to the truth. Put an asterisk by that because the truth is not going to be found in you sitting on a rock imagining what Jesus was like or is like. It's about you researching the only book God ever wrote. It's called the Bible, opening it up and seeing what what it says about this Christ. That becomes the benchmark, the standard, the calibration, the ability for me to look at my view and say, here's the real Christ and here's my idea of Christ. Let's close the gap between those two. And if what I see from the real Christ doesn't match my presumptions about Christ, then if I find myself getting angry or mad, maybe like Herod and and the Pharisees and the chief priests, then I realize I'm expecting the wrong things out of Christ. A couple of ways we respond. Let's start before we ever get to vehemence and anger. Let's talk about how the average person deals with it. The average person, here's what I would say, they avoid the truth. And by that I mean the asterisk next to it, they avoid the Bible. They avoid the the, the scripture itself. Even the guys leading a movement away from the Bible are leading the movement away from the Bible, like Marcion of old. What they're doing is trying to find a canon within a canon. And by that I mean they're trying to find a source of authority within the Bible, but it's not the whole of the Bible. So let's either unhitch Christianity from the Old Testament, that'd be good because there's a lot of things in the Old Testament I don't like. Or they're like the red letter Christians. You familiar with those guys? Where guys like Brian McLaren and, and Tony Campolo and that some Catholics jump in on that and all the rest who we say, well, we're red letters. And that means we're going to go to our Bibles and only find the red letter part and read about what Jesus said. And thankfully, he didn't say anything about homosexuality. Whew, didn't say anything about a lot of things. So I can just, I can be copacetic about that Christ, but all that other stuff on both sides, Paul, not interested, Old Testament, not interested. So I'm just going to deal with these red letters of Christ. And I kind of like him and I think he'll fit in with my Bible study that I'm having at, at Starbucks and it'll be good. I, I can work with that Jesus. Well, a couple of responses I have. Number one, the red letter Christians rarely read all the red letters. Now, I know Tony and Brian and those guys certainly do, but they are not fair in presenting the red letters of the Bible because you read, you read all the red letters of the Bible, the things that these guys don't like, including teachings about hell, for instance. You think any of those guys like the teaching about hell? Don't think so. I mean, you got to do some really difficult mental gymnastics to get out of what the Bible says regarding hell just from the red letters. But worse than that, I would just say this. When it comes to these people that are trying to truncate this reductionistic Christianity where they're just trying to find the right passages that they like, as I often say jokingly from the platform, they want their 12 favorite passages of the Bible to to really inform the whole of their theology. They're missing the idea of what Jesus said. Now jot this down if you're taking notes because it is important when it comes to what Jesus taught. Here's a verse for all your red letter Christians. John chapter 14 verses 7 through 11. John 14, 7 through 11. Jesus said this when he's having a conversation with Philip. He says, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. Philip says to him in the next verse, Lord, show us the father. And that'll be enough. Jesus said, have I been with you so long? You still don't know me, Philip. Whoever has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Do you not believe that I am in the father and the father is in me? And the words that I say to you do not speak on my own authority, but the father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me, I am in the father and the father is in me or else believe on me account of the works themselves. I'm doing the works that should prove to you like the creative works that the, the Bible attributes to the father. I'm doing all those things. I'm giving life just like the father gives life. I do it at my own will. I raise who I want. Those are the issues that should lead you to say everything about the God of the Old Testament, the 39 books, should not be unhitched from our view of Christ. Why? Because Christ says, I am the embodiment of that. In other words, your theology proper about who God is, 
The God that you don't like who kills Canaanites in the Old Testament, the ethnic cleansing and genocide that you don't like, that's the God, the Father of the Old Testament. This is who I am. To put it in the words of Hebrews chapter 1, Verse number three, this Christ is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. So a reductionistic, kind of Marcionistic, I'm going to find a a, a canon within a canon here. You want to go to the red letters? Well, read the red letters that say, everything that I am is the whole God that you've read about in the whole of the Bible. Therefore, I know this, that Christ is not in any way saying, hey, let me just reduce all of this to a palatable kind of Christianity. Because the same God that condemns the sexual sins and perversions of the Old Testament that do it in great detail in paragraph form is the same Christ who sits there and says, hey, I am the embodiment of that. I am. You want to talk about this? I am God and all my attributes are now in me. You see me, you see the Father. That picture of a Christ who's giving us, and this is very important now because here's the problem with modern Christianity, is a picture of the whole of Scripture. I want to be a biblical Christian who believes in the whole counsel of God, not just part of it. And so I need to realize that when I'm reading parts of the Bible that aren't my favorite parts or the red letter parts or the the 12 most quoted passages in the New Testament or the Psalms that I really like that seem poetic and cool, things that are quotable on teenage girls' Twitter feeds, I'm thinking I'm outside of that now. I don't want to think to myself, well, if I get upset about this part of the Bible, it's okay because I'm still cool with this part of the Bible. See, Satan trafficked in that stuff. He quotes Psalm 91 to Jesus in Luke 4 when he's being tempted. He says, oh, but look at this passage. You can do what I'm saying from this passage. And Jesus has to respond with what? Other passages. Why? Because it's the whole counsel of God. We're not here with irreconcilable passages. We just need the whole picture. And you're misquoting that passage. And so we can say about everyone today with a reductionistic view of Christianity that wants to take our Christianity and say, don't look at the whole thing. I don't want to look at the whole of it. I just want to look at this part of it because this part of it seems to go pretty well with our modern culture, at least better than the rest of it. I don't want to be a Bible-thumping Christian who starts quoting Leviticus in the middle of a conversation at the lunch table. Well, be really careful with that. Because what you're doing is what is so often the case within modern Christianity. And the first reaction, or what did I put? Uh, Yeah, reaction to the truth is this. We avoid the truth. And, And I mean that because there's the Bible that sits there revealing the whole of who Christ is and the whole of who God is. And we avoid it. Did you know this? A lot of just extensive surveying done about how Christians relate to the Bible. Here's a scary thing. Let's just make sure I get the numbers right here on this. 20%. Let's invert it. 80% of all the people claiming to be Bible teaching, Bible believing, I trust in Christ, I am a Christian, Jesus on my t-shirt people, 80% do not read their Bibles regularly. Think about that. They don't read it regularly. They don't read their Bibles every day. They just don't read it. That's the number one way to avoid having a vehement response to Nahum chapter one. I just don't read it. Crossway publishers, the one that published the English standard version that we use here at our church. They did a survey, 6,000 respondents about their Bible reading habits. This one's worth looking up at some point on the internet. I think if you look for infographics and Christian's response or Bible reading habits and Crossway, you'd certainly find that on on a search. They create a colorful chart, which I think is helpful, of the 66 books of the Bible with a very probing set of questions they ask, tell me, when was the last time you've been in this part of the Bible? And they break down the 66 books of the Bible. And they do it in various shades of like, okay, have I read it recently? Have I read it in the last six months? Have I encountered it or read it in the last year? And, and then have I read it ever? So they create this colorful chart 
which is kind of pretty, I suppose, but it's an ugly picture that emerges, and that is that people avoid sections of the Bible that don't match their preconceptions of a Christ that they would like to be really cool and fitting in with our culture. In other words, they're not going to read Nahum chapter 1. They might start to read it, and it singes their eyeballs, and they go, oh, I don't like that, and then we move on to something else. I don't want to read about the, the people being killed in, in Canaan. I don't want to read about these, the conquest of the land. I don't want to read about God punishing his own people in, in Israel and calling them spiritual prostitutes. And I don't want to look at the Babylonian captivity, the Assyrian assault. Ooh, it's not just that it's boring in a bunch of, of genealogies. It's that it really grates against my preferred view of Christ, the avoidance. All right, well, Mike's trying to slip me in the shoes of someone like that. I, I don't think I'm, I'm that person. Great. I don't think you or I would want to put ourselves on the same par as John the Baptist. Jesus said he's the greatest. I mean, there's going to be a long line waiting to see John the Baptist and hang out with him. And I mean, his appointment calendar for lunches in the New Jerusalem is going to be long, right? He's a big guy. And I'm not here to throw him under the bus. But there is one scene that I learn about in the Gospel of Luke that we studied in depth. When he was in a prison and Herod had put him there, it was before, obviously, he got beheaded. And at one point, he sends two of his disciples to Jesus, and he says, I just need to know, are you the Christ, or should we look for someone else? Now, does that startle you? That's a concerning passage, isn't it? You are the number one promoter. You are the number one preacher of this Jesus. You said, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. And now you're wondering, uh, did I have this thing wrong the whole time? I mean, I've heard that preached in a lot of weird and bizarre ways. But I got to stand back and say, you got a point here. John, this is not his best day. Why is that? Well, he's in prison. I mean, there's a dark cloud hanging over his head. A lot of the people that should be on the top of society here as they usher in the Messiah and the kingdom, now they're being persecuted and put in prison and in stocks. And some people are going to start to die because of this. Now you can look at all the stuff that he could have read. Let's just start with Isaiah, Isaiah 30, Isaiah 33, Isaiah 40, Isaiah 44. All the passages that speak of the coming Messiah in terms like the the, the beauty of the Lord. The Lord's going to come. People are going to see his beauty. We're going to see him come with a strong arm of of, of judgment upon his adversaries and bring recompense to his people. He's going to come and deliver us and save us. You have all these positive images of the Messiah. And you know what? John the Baptist was going, I love those passages of scripture. That's great. That's what I'm looking for. But turn a few pages or scroll down a little bit on Isaiah scroll and you end up hitting passages like this, speaking of the beauty of the Messiah. He had no beauty, no majesty with which we should look at him, Isaiah 53. Matter of fact, he was uh, despised and he was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He was like one from whom men hide their faces. I mean, he was afflicted and, and, and the chastisement of us all fell on him. This Messiah figure now all of a sudden goes into the, into, the, into the garbage tank. I mean, he's the scum of the world to people in that passage. Well, what's the deal? Do you think that John the Baptist didn't know that passage? Of course he did. Now, I'm not here to throw him under the bus. He's a way better guy than I'll ever be. I understand that. But I look at a guy who does something that I think if he's prone to do it, I'm prone to do it. And that is this. You can have passages of scripture that you know. But you can in one way. I don't, know, I don't know if you're actively suppressing those passages, but you're conveniently forgetting those passages, and your view of Messiah has to only be this. And I don't like that side. Just like you will go to work and you'll talk to your non-Christian friends about the love of God, and you don't want to talk about the justice of God. In his case, I want to talk about Messiah coming and doing all these things, but you know what? I don't want to come, about, come and talk about Messiah doing all those things because those are kind of negative here. Had he had the full-orbed picture of Scripture, 
He would have said, I guess somehow God's going to work this out that the Messiah can come and both be a suffering servant and also be a reigning monarch. I don't know how he's going to figure that out, but I know this, I believe in both of them. And if he's going to be a suffering monarch and he's going to take the heat of a culture and a nation and be crucified, I guess if I'm sitting in a prison, everything's right on schedule and just fine. And as a matter of fact, if he could see himself as the privileged martyr to do, as, as later in the New Testament they said, what a privilege for us to suffer for Christ. I count it an honor. He wasn't there. Why? It wasn't because it wasn't in the Bible. It was because his focus was naturally drawn to the more affable, the more positive, the more optimistic, the more generous, the more, I don't know, palatable parts of Scripture. So monitor your response to the truth. And this all comes down to for our day, because I can't take you to an apartment to have you sit down with Christ, to the Scripture. What does it say? What parts of it do you avoid? What parts of it do you see and it churns your stomach? Speaking of our friend, you know, these best-selling books, you know, it's not our friend, but these people that say, I wrote this book to try and take this whole part about hell, Rob Bell writes in his book, and because it churned my stomach and I didn't like it. If you're a Bible-believing Christian, let's just commit today, we're going to be about the whole counsel of God. I'm going to have to change my views in my heart and my perceptions about what is good and what is right to that God that has revealed to himself and his monarch, his Lord, I'm going to have to have that be the benchmark, and I'm going to adapt my heart to that truth. I'm not going to adapt that truth to my heart. And that's the problem we have in modern evangelicalism. And it's a problem that I think is on display in Herod and the chief priests and the scribes' life who say, hey, we didn't get what we wanted out of Christ. He didn't meet all our expectations. Let's just, let's just reject that stuff, that part. And for them, of course, when you reject part of Christ, you reject all of Christ. Well, let me just quote this at the end of that discussion, Luke 7, that I was referring to, alluding to, the, the last verse when Jesus sends those two disciples of John back to that prison. He says this, tell John this, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Offended. Scandalizo. Scandal. Doesn't see me as the scandal that gets you upset, that angers you. Someone that charges you with wrong. Man, how blessed is the person that can take the whole counsel of God and say it is all good, the word of God is right, all the bad things that happen in the Bible, they are for some wise, intelligent, just, holy meaning, and a bunch of sinful people trying to stand in judgment of parts of the Bible that we don't like. That is no place for us to be. Let's let the scripture speak for what it is. Let's let let the, the image emerge of not only theology proper, but Christology and soteriology and eschatology. And we stand back and say, if this is God's plan, I adapt myself to that. As I told you that story many times, my haircutter saying it one time, not my current haircutter, my old haircutter saying, as I shared the gospel with him, he says, if that's God, I, I don't want anything to do with the God. And I said, it's the only God there is. That's it. There's only one God. And the God of the Bible, as Francis Schaeffer used to say, has revealed himself. He has spoken. I can't actively suppress the texts of scripture. I can't avoid them. I can't ignore them. And I dare not be angry at them. Matter of fact, Jesus beckons me to say, you'll be blessed if you're not angered, stumbled, upset by the passages of Scripture that don't sit well with your preferences and proclivities, your sensibilities. That's hard. That means we change. We're full of a culture right now trying to change the Christ of the Bible. Well, lastly, verse 12, as he sends him back to Pilate, it says, interestingly here, Herod, Antipas, and Pilate, the prefect of, from Rome, here over Judea, they became friends with each other that day. Before this, they had been at enmity with each other. Maybe in the margin of your reference Bible or your study Bible, you might have Luke 13. Perhaps that's the reason. We don't know. 
Historically, we don't have any extra-biblical information or any biblical information, except that maybe it was some kind of situation, as it says in Luke 13, 1, when Pilate did something to have these Galileans killed. Well, Galileans, that ought to be bing, bing, bing. That's Herod's jurisdiction. And, and so maybe they were mad because of what Pilate did, maybe stepped over the, the line and, and, and exercised some kind of jurisdiction in Herod's world that he shouldn't. Whatever the reason are, it doesn't tell us. But the interesting point that is there for our taking is that those two guys that weren't friends that day became friends. Why? Because they unified in opposition against Christ. They didn't like him. Christ wasn't what they wanted him to be. Because the enemy of my enemy is my friend. That's how it often works. You don't like him? I don't like him either. Hey, high five. Fist pump. Great. We're against him. The bedfellows of people against the biblical historical Christ of the whole council of God's word is very interesting. Amazing how those factions, whether it's political, philosophical, theological, whether it's the cults, to see them draw together. And it's funny how they put their arms around each other as long as we can attack the biblical Christ. And here's the forecast. That's only going to get worse. Number three in your outline, let's put it this way. We need to expect more coordinated opposition. Coordinated. It's coordinated. It's almost like a conspiracy. It is a conspiracy. I'm not a conspiratorialist. I've told you that before. Not of the Alex Jones variety, you understand. I am a conspiratorialist in the Ephesians 6 variety, and that is this, that I don't wrestle against flesh and blood, whether it's a politician, whether it's a philosophy professor at a university, whether it's a a liberal theologian, or or whether it's a cult leader. I don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Doesn't mean I don't have problems with those people. It's this, that I know behind that there are cosmic forces and powers, and they're all about extinguishing and opposing the truth. The truth. They'll put up with a an imitation, a Jesus of my own imagination, but they're not going to put up with the, with the Bible's Jesus. So I know this. I'm going to expect that kind of unification against biblical Christianity. Expect it. It's going to happen. It's going to get harder. According to 1 Timothy chapter 4, the Spirit expressly says, 4.1, that in latter times, you're going to see people devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. doesn't mean there's going to be more witch shops at the at the Irvine spectrum. It means that you're going to have things that are driving the marketplace, the politics, the academia of the world that are all going to say, let's pitch and, and, and chisel away and reform that biblical view of Christ until we can make it palatable. They're attacking Christianity, uniquely so. And it's going to get worse. Second Timothy 3.1, last days, difficult times, we're in them. Don't freak out. Just know that it's here. And I just went back and looked at this week's news. European Court of Human Rights. Let me just set this up as a stage, not to make a point, but to make the point that comes from this point. So follow me on this. Maybe you read about the ECHR, the European Court of Human Rights, that heard that case against the Austrian woman who stood up and said in her lecture series that Mohammed, of course, now we're already on shaky ground. You talk about Mohammed, uh-oh, a lot of, a lot of Muslims are going to be very concerned with what you say next. Talked about the fact that he married a six-year-old girl, which is a point of historical fact, and the way she said it wasn't all that respectful, which is hard to make that a respectful statement. I married a six-year-old. I don't know how that's respectful, but nevertheless, caused some waves. And in Austria, they reported her. She went to trial. She got convicted. Convicted for what? For offending people. Then we're not talking a Sharia law suburb in Afghanistan, right? What are we talking about? We're talking about a European court in Austria. Well, it finally went to the European Court of Human Rights. You're thinking, finally, we're gonna, someone's going to stand up for the freedom to be able to say something, even if people don't like it. It's going to be about free speech and all the rest. They did not dismiss it. As a matter of fact, they didn't vindicate her. They did just the opposite, and they upheld the ruling, and her conviction was stayed because they, in their statement, said this. 
we have to carefully balance the right of freedom of expression, her saying what she wants to say about Islam, with the right of others to have their religious feelings protected. Now, we've reached a really bizarre world we're living in. When right now, we're going to rule against people because you said something that hurts my feelings. And unless your head's in the sand, I guess that's no new motif for the modern world. You're hurting my feelings. That should be against the law. Well, when it comes to Islam, of course, there's a lot of pressure. And so it is that this religion right now is able to say in a court in Europe of all places that that woman should not have said that. And as a matter of fact, go to the Wikipedia page. You'll find 1918 wives of, of Muhammad that are laid out. And Isha, the one that was the youngest, they'll try to say, and even those that are very amiable toward, toward Islam and apologists of Islam, say, well, she didn't really consummate the marriage till, they were, till she was nine years old. Nevertheless, that's an appalling thing for most people in our day to say someone marries a six-year-old and has sex with her at nine. That's a problem. And people are going to gasp at that. And so when that happens, here's the thing. She's now convicted. And I'm thinking, great. If you're going to make a policy that people cannot hurt religious people's feelings, I'm thinking, great. I guess we're in that group because aren't we religious? We're Christians, right? I'm setting the stage now. You think that's happening? I don't know. I just started looking back at all the things. I looked at the most extreme examples, which some of them I'm sure you've heard about. Remember that artist that put together a picture of Christ at the pinnacle of his redemptive work on a cross, and as an art piece, he put him in a vat of urine, a clear plexiglass glass container of urine, and that was a piece of art. Now, of course, that's going to hurt Christians' feelings, I'm thinking, right? the Christ encased in urine, right? Well, I think that's a problem. So that was banned, of course, when it went before the European Court of Human Rights, right? No. That piece in that museum won the Southeastern Center for Contemporary Arts Awards and Visual Arts Competition, which, by the way, was sponsored by the National Endowment of the Arts from the United States of America, underwritten by your tax dollars. That was an award-winning piece of art. Pastor crushed by meteor. It was a sculpture. It was an artist piece. It wasn't banned because we're bashing pastors and putting them in the ground. Crushed by rocks. It wasn't outlawed. Matter of fact, Christie's Auction House, I looked up this week, estimates that piece of art right now as worth $500,000. There was a work of art in the sensation exhibit in London and Berlin called the Holy Virgin Mary. Now, we're not Catholics here. We didn't, we didn't canonize Mary as some kind of venerated place of worship. But you and I recognize she's a, I mean, a key and, and valued and, and, and virtuous character in the Bible that's upheld. And you and I, man, we see her as a hero. Well, she was in this piece of art that was presented and toured around Europe, bare-breasted depiction of her, the mother of Jesus, molded out of excrement from elephants. That was the picture. It's hurting my feelings at that point, right? But of course, everyone's going to step in and protect Christianity like we're protecting Islam or a lot of other world religions. I could go on and on. The transgender Jesus paintings passed off as art. Naked woman dressed up like a man. This is Christ. Jesus urinating on people. Passed off as tasteful expressions of, of higher, sophisticated, highbrow art. Mary being strangulated by Jesus. People applauding as great artwork. One uh, commentator put it this way in an article that ran. And of course, it ran in a conservative periodical. It said, today's people love anti-religious art. Here's the headline. They love anti-religious art as long as it's anti-Christian art. And if you start to think about how often so many people's religious feelings are protected, whether it's Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, even Islam of all, of all religions. And then you look at Christianity, particularly Bible-believing Christians who believe in the whole counsel of God, you start to think, it seems like there's a conspiracy here, a coordinated effort to say all these rules of people being catered to and coddled to, it all applies until we're talking about Bible-believing Christians. 
well, you know, just yesterday they shot up a synagogue and, you know, that was happening in Pittsburgh. No, you're right. I understand that. A lot of people hate a lot of people for a lot of different reasons. But I would say, frankly, a lot of that is a lot more about ethnicity than it is about religion. Nevertheless, it happens, and clearly I'm not letting people off the hook for being anti-Semitic. It's happened all over the world. It is egregious. It's awful. It's horrific. It should never happen. But when it comes to Christianity today, let's take Pittsburgh, for instance. They're going to have the uh, Kids Marathon next year in 2019. Think Think this through. A kids event for children to promote positive things in the community. Well, they have sponsors, obviously, that step up, T-shirts and banners and stuff. People need to support it. Someone's got to pay for all this stuff. And so the city has, or this event, rather, the leaders of this event, directors, got together and they had a title sponsor generously underwriting the kids' marathon. Just happened to be Chick-fil-A. Dun, dun, dun. Not Chick-fil-A. Yeah. They make chicken sandwiches. Yeah, I know. But, but what? But Dan Cathy, of course, maybe he's the, the owner, he's, he's said some things about homosexuality. Like what? Like, well, if when it comes to marriage, at least, I think it should be, the way it's been for millennia, that you've got to have a, a man and a wife, you know, like a scientific man and a scientific wife. And I know that's really crazy talk, but that should be what marriage is. And he said that, oh my goodness, on record he said that? Yes, he said that. He's not stringing up homosexuals in his, in his basement and killing them. He, he's not hate-mongering. And yet you had, let's just get this straight, nine city council members in Pittsburgh. Read about it this week signed a letter to remove Chick-fil-A from this event because of their bigoted, hateful beliefs, okay? Christians. I think, I think Islam's against homosexuality too. I, I recognize that. But it's amazing. Look at the conspiratorial nature of this. This is not human conspiracy. This is a spiritual conspiracy that's taking place in our country and in our culture. And it wasn't just the Pittsburgh City Council. Speaking of Pittsburgh, The Pittsburgh Public School Board joined together in threatening against this kid's marathon to ban employees who would even participate in it. Right? I can't even... If I work as a janitor at the the school district, I can't even go to the kid's marathon? No, why? Because a chicken sandwich president actually said in a newspaper interview that he really would really want to stick with this ancient definition that just happens to be biblical when he calls himself a Christian that thinks that homosexuality really might not work out for this whole marriage thing and, and procreating and creating families. I just don't think that's right. But you're a Christian. See, that's the problem. Maybe that's something to do with last year the school board unanimously approved the transgender resolutions for the school district Petitions everywhere popping up against this ridiculous story of Chick-fil-A sponsoring a kid's marathon that can't happen, that cannot happen. See, we are now in a post-Christian America that is becoming a pre-Christian Rome. We are in a post-Christian America. Right? It's not your grandparents' America anymore. That's much like the pre-Christian Rome. I know in Rome, we finally got around to a fact where we legalized Christianity and made Sunday a holiday and a lot of things happened and made it very easy for churches to own property and all the rest. But before that, they were hostile against Christianity. And I already mentioned this, but in Acts 28, when Paul was in prison under house arrest waiting for the Caesar trial that he had he deferred to, and he was waiting in a a situation where leaders came to him. And at one point in the middle of Acts 28, it says in verse 21, hey, we've received no letters from Judea about you and none of the brothers here have reported or spoken anything evil about you. So we can't find anyone that has a charge that you're some kind of bad person, immoral person, a pedophile. I mean, you're not some kind of insurrectionist. We don't understand even why you're in prison. But, verse 22, we want to hear from you. We desire to hear from you and what your views are with regard to this sect because we know that everywhere it is spoken against. In other words, I don't understand it. At least these objective leaders were saying, why is it that everyone hates your religion? You seem to be a normal guy. I don't see any problems with you. So we'd like to hear what's so scandalous about your theology. Well, it is scandalous. 
Because what we're preaching is that you have a sin problem you can't fix. It is so serious against the personal God. God himself had to step into space and time and do the fixing for you. And you've got to repent of your sins, call yourself a sinner, put yourself under the protection of the cross and say, Christ's going to pay my sins 2,000 years ago and I need to become a follower of that Jesus. That is scandalous to our world. You cannot say that in mixed company today. It is absolutely unbelievable, the world that we live in. And a message like this on a Sunday morning in a county that doesn't like this kind of story, I think you're saying, oh, I'm so glad I came to Compass Bible Church this morning. That's so encouraging. Go take on the day. I'm not here to discourage you. I know it can make you mad. I get that. Looking at the problems of opposition, looking at our culture, trying to weed out in our own lives this selective cafeteria Christianity and saying, no, I want to be a biblical Christian that believes in the whole counsel of God and I need to stand firm on this and be resolute. I understand that is going to make you mad at a world that's going to attack that. And we feel like we're going to torch this world. Just throw it away. Speaking of that, it reminds me of a guy in Fresno trying to kill spiders in his house. Did you hear that story this week? I killed a spider on uh, Friday night. A big spider. I got up on furniture on my tiptoes with a Kleenex and squished that big spider up on the wall. Of course, they have to crawl around high on the wall. Nevertheless, I got it. So I get this guy. He's got spider in his home. I, I, I understand your, your aversion to spiders. But he allowed that aversion to spiders to cloud his judgment because he decided, as the news reported, to go after these spiders in his house with a blowtorch. <laughs> well, as you might expect, he unintentionally burned the house down. The kicker on the story, which you have to keep reading to get this in the news events, in the news articles, was that this grown man was house-sitting his parents' house when this happened. Well, that's just beautiful right there. <laughs> hey, Dad, I'm out here on the curve. They're trying to put the fire out now. What happened? Well, oh, I'm trying to solve your spider problem. These are maddening topics. You can't burn down your father's world. Matter of fact, he's very clear about that. He'll deal with the house when he's done with the house. Right now, there's lots of things that we don't like. But you want to keep your mind where it should be and not lose heart, even though in this world we're going to have tribulation and increasing coordinated opposition. Then you remember that Christ has overcome the world and the way that he's overcoming it Slowly, at least in our dispensation, the thing that bats back the gates of hell as the church presses forward, the thing that makes heaven cheer louder than any other thing ever revealed to us in Scripture is that when one sinner in this sinful, dark world stops being a rebellious sinner against God, they repent. That's the excitement. Even at the time of this interrogation, as Jesus stood there and they're mocking him and Pilate and Herod are high-fiving each other and fist-pumping each other because now they've found a common enemy. The irony in all of this is that there stood a woman there in that group. Her name was Anna. And Anna was the wife of Cusa, and Cusa was the trusted lieutenant. Some believe he was the financial overseer of Herod's entire house, and she happened to be, as the scripture tells us in Luke 8, 3, a convert who was supporting the work of Christ. There was a martyr in Asia, the first martyr in Asia, from a city of Pergamum. The interesting thing about this is his name is Antipas. Matter of fact, if you do a 
little search on your phone or your iPad or your laptop in your Bible stuff and you type in Antipas, unless you're looking in a Bible dictionary, you're going to have one hit in your Bible text, and that is in Pergamum. And in Pergamum, there was a guy who was there hailed by Jesus in his postcard to Pergamum as the martyr, the witness, that's how it's translated in the ESV, as a, as a hero. And his name is Antipas. Now, is that Longnecker fiction that I said is kind of a fun read for historical reasons. It's all a fiction. I don't read much historical fiction, but it's a fanciful, imaginative representation of this guy Antipas from Pergamum. I've recommended it before. It should, I should put it on the reading list at one point. It's called The Lost Letters to Pergamum, or The Lost Letters of Pergamum. Bruce Longnecker. He tells the story of Antipas. Of course, it's an imaginative story, but he's an insightful historian, so he understands the culture And I would agree with him. There's just no way this guy Antipas is going to be called Antipas in this particular place, this Roman colony, unless he somehow has connection. I mean, at least his parents were like, and you don't, you know, don't toss that name around lightly. Herod Antipas was the guy in northern Israel. And so you've got a guy with some connection and we can kind of fill in the blanks with our imagination and we'll find out one day the details of this guy. But the context in which Jesus praises him is this. Listen carefully. Verse 13, Rev 2. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Whoa, Satan's throne. Well, it was where the temple of Zeus was in ancient Pergamum. Look this up in your Bible dictionaries. And that was, of course, the God that so many revered in the Greco-Roman world is the kingpin. And there was also a shrine there, the shrine of the snake, which may have been the theological connection to that statement. A snake that was considered to be a medicinal God that would solve your physical problems. And it was the hotbed of emperor worship as well. Whatever motivated that, Jesus says, Satan is very active in your city. Yet, he says to the church, you hold fast to my name. You guys are faithful. You did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful martyr, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. It's only going to get worse. And I'm not here to give you a forecast to distress you. It's not to depress you, not to discourage you, not to anger you. It's to get you to say that even if Satan himself were to set up shop in South Orange County and say, this is the main hub of my work in Western society or in the world, they're going to be people. And I love the fact that that name was plucked right from Herod's family of people that are going to be converted people that are going to be converted from darkness to light, their lives are going to be changed. We should leave this message not depressed about our culture. You should leave motivated that Christ is going to build this church and the gates of hell itself will not prevail against it. Let's be encouraged. There's an Antipas in your workplace, an Antipas in your neighborhood, perhaps an Antipas in your family that needs to come to Christ. Keep throwing the gospel out there. It's going to hit good soil. We're going to see... Again, people repent and angels rejoicing in heaven. Let's pray. God, give us hope in the midst of a world that the headlines continue to discourage us, that it seems all but masterfully, humanly coordinated, that people seem to continually single Christianity out, biblical Christianity out. And even among Christians, people that name the name of Christ, they single out Bible-teaching Christians as the source of their vehemence, or I should say the target of their vehemence, their vitriol, and their anger. God, help us to, to bear it well. Let us have said of us what Paul had said of him, and that is we don't see anything about you as a person.
We're interested to know why everyone hates your religion. I'm going to share that news because I know we all struggle with being called sinners and every non-Christian I've ever shared the gospel to doesn't like that part of it. But that foolish message of our sin solved in Christ, as Paul so masterfully said to the Corinthians, is the very thing that becomes the power and wisdom of God for us as we realize it's true. And the solution that Christ brought to us being the ransom for our sins is that's the most freeing, wonderfully satisfying thing that could ever happen. Puts us on a track of a kind of fulfillment that the prosperity preachers will never know. They don't understand it. To have our guilt and sins forgiven to where we could be in a dungeon in Philippi with our hands in stocks, having a back that had been beaten with the cat of nine tails and still be able at midnight if we can't sleep because of the pain to be able to sing hymns to God. God, give us that kind of joy, the joy and the peace that surpasses all understanding as we continue to be your ambassadors in our culture. Give us success in this work in Jesus' name. Amen.